episode of Thinking Aloud about film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. And today we're going to be talking about the Bill Douglas trilogy, a series of films he made in the 70s that are currently playing on movie. They're being billed as features, though I think that's really stretching the definition because I think my childhood and my Ain folk are in the 40-minute range, and then My Way Home is a proper feature. It's about 70 minutes. They're, I guess, classes features for funding and promotion purposes, I, I imagine. But yeah, but yeah view, viewed as a trilogy, I think it makes up one significant film, I think. Shall we take them one by one? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so there are three films, My Childhood, My Ain Folk, and My Way Home. My Childhood was the first, and to me it was a revelation. I thought, you know, one of the great films of all time, full of poetry and feeling, really. When we talked about doing these, I, I said, I think I, I saw them decades ago on, on TV. After watching the first one, I realised I actually hadn't seen these before. I'm going to have to, like, hand in my film snob badge cause, <laughs> because I realised after watching the first one that I was getting my semi-autobiographical bleak tri childhood trilogies by legendary British directors mixed up. The one I had seen was the Terence Davis trilogy, ah. which is even more depressing than this. But great. But also, absolutely great. And they're, yeah, they're both great. They're both very different. But, but basically what that means is for the last 40 years, Whenever anyone's mentioned the Bill Douglas trilogy to me, the image I have in my head is the Terence Davis trilogy. <laughs> but, <laughs> so for that reason, it was a bit of a revelation because I was expecting to have, be familiar with it, and I wasn't. It was it was amazing the style of it and the style of all three really. They, they sort of it's like early cinema. It's like it's like a silent film, you know, with these really long static shots. He's not afraid to let the camera linger on places and things. Uh, I must say, I found it a case of diminishing returns. I think that my childhood is an outright masterpiece. Yeah, and then I feel more ambivalent or progressively more ambivalent uh, with the rest. So let's, let's linger on my childhood. I loved it because, again, you know, one of these things about how you identify with things or how things touch you. But I thought one of the things that I did that is kind of consonant with my own childhood is that it is picturing or depicting or recreating a way of life that is long gone because mm, yeah. mm. we should it, say these are these are it was made in the early 70s but set in 1945 those, that's right those two films yeah yeah so that thing of people like you know not having food of the living in a place that's just outside of edinburgh but that feels almost medieval in some way the way the grandmother is dressed, which is like a Spanish peasant. Or, yeah, know, yeah. It's all in black and kind of bulky clothing. And obviously the cold is an issue. These bare rooms, you know, this kind of constant hunger for food. You get a sense that the people are surviving. But also that, you know, the child has a loving grandmother in a difficult situation. Yeah, the uh, whole relationship with a German prisoner of war you know, which is very loving and which is clearly the father figure that he's lacking in his life. All of that was very moving. And there were moments of real visual poetry. There's no other yeah. way of, of putting it. Like, you know, the scene where the child kind of is walking through the bridge and kind of almost bathed in the fumes of the passing train. Yeah, it feels kind of marvelous and kind of magic, really. To sort of echo what you were saying, one thing I found interesting watching it was how 
how much it reminded me of watching some of the films set in you know rural areas of Turkey or Egypt or, or yes. various bits of Africa we've we've seen because it, again as you say a, a lifestyle that that could have been any time in the last few centuries but this was you know 1945 as you say just outside Edinburgh which becomes clear in the second film how close they are to Edinburgh you know this is kind of accurate because it's based so closely on on Douglas's own own upbringing so. right. it's really kind of suggestive work that raises all kinds of issues for me because I mean, you know, you mentioned these Turkish films and so on, but what is different in this film is the sense of family. You know, this child lacks love. He's only getting love from his grandmother. You know, his brother, who drops out of the narrative later, really. Mm. Because you say brother, but actually, I hadn't quite worked out that's actually his cousin, not his brother, which is not that clear. And, and that, I thought that's... it was a half brother. No, no, I, that's, that's what I that's what I thought, but. Bill Douglas website and BFI website say cousin and although I've seen other reviews that say half brother the grandmother has two daughters the the older one's mother is dead and that's why he says at the beginning of the film Mars dead and Jamie's mother is in an asylum so it's so it's two different mothers both having illegitimate children by different fathers um, but ah. yeah I, I didn't I didn't quite understand that but I think that's the thing in particular that, that, that happens again in the second film that these family relationships in this film are very complicated, but not really explained because it's all through the eyes of the of the young child, really. So you you're you're not told who people are. You have to kind of work it out. Uh, right. Okay. Well, I mean that's a problem because really the, the filmmaker could have been clearer. I mean it wouldn't have taken long to make that clearer. Yeah. And not have so many of their audience confused. But that's a minor problem. I just want to indicate that particularly in the second film, you know, My Own Folk, it really reminded me of Young Mungo, yeah, the novel. And mm. there seems to be a real kind of Scottishness about it. And also Shuggy Bain, the other book by Douglas Stewart. The other similarity with that is that's based very closely on Douglas Stewart's own life story. And it's a really bleak upbringing and a really tragic story. But the happy ending of it is kind of when you realise at the end of the book, that it's based on the on the novelist's life and what what ended up happening to him um, yes is, is it shows that he was able to get out of that that kind of bleak environment i think both yeah the autobiographical element what happens to the subject in real life as opposed to in fiction you know how the real life story enables us to give a particular kind of purview or approach into the fiction is also a real indictment of British culture. My own folk, I found it kind of so painful to watch. It's like so bleak. It really, you know, this this sense of, you know, the adults kind of selfishness and carelessness and, you know, the lack, the withdrawal of love, the physical punishment of vulnerable children, you know, the lack of sense of what they're doing you know, the, the taking better care of a dog than of your own grandchild. Right? Yeah, all, yeah. All of those things are so brutally It's depicted. It's really brutally, I mean, of, of the three. I mean, you, just to sort of briefly go through the overall plot of the trilogy, it's, it's, it, for people who haven't seen it, the, the, the first one, the young boy Jamie is living with his cousin or brother, <laughs> probably not, and, and his maternal grandmother across the street lives the person he later finds out is his father and the paternal grandmother is on that side of the street 
the end of the first film, the grandmother dies. The older boy gets taken off to a children's home. Jamie ends up living with the, the paternal grandmother and is treated pretty brutally by by her and by the by there's an uncle. Uh, the father isn't any use at all. That's very, very bleak, very, very grim. By the third film, he's in a children's home and actually has a much better environment in the children's home than he does at home, which you don't always expect. He goes back home for a while. He tries to get a job. He goes into a foster home for a while and then ends up doing national service, meeting this middle, middle class guy who kind of changes his life. My aim folk, it's... In some ways, I, I, I did think it was great, but it's, it's, as you say, really, really painful to watch. Um, I mean, you don't really see details of what happens to the boy, but, you know, he, you hear him being brutally beaten. There's an implication at one point even of, 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 of sex abuse by the uncle as well, I think, is, is implied. You don't see any of this. It's just suggested. It's incredibly bleak, and it's, it's this fact that no, nobody cares. Is, yeah. Well, worse than that, they want to steal from him the whole incident with the pearl necklace, mm, mm. you know, which is what he gets beaten for. And, you know, there's a real sense that even his parents, his grandparents, it's just, you know, what they can get out of him. The only one he experiences love from is the, the paternal grandfather, a former boxer who is now too weak to defend him and who suggests that he might be better off in a home. Yeah, that's yeah. how brutal it is. But I found it still very good, like still beautiful. And there are all these long scenes that are held for a long time on faces of not speaking uh, and almost of a lack of expression. Yeah, so you're really having to project or feel or extract kind of what that poor boy who cannot speak is feeling. Yeah, they're all non professional actors, and, and um, I, I, well, certainly the leads are. And a lot of it is just close-ups of the boy's face. I mean, it's like the Passion of Joan of Arc or something. Yes, you know, it's it is, it just is, his it face. Just this repeated scene of him. He's always standing in the corner of the living of the of the room in the cottage, facing his grandmother sitting in the chair, and you just get a close-up of his face. You know, conveying whatever thoughts are going through his his mind, and you, you don't necessarily know what thoughts they are. But he's, he's very. It's a very affecting performance, I think. And there are moments that are so touching. So. Because the boy basically has to steal to eat. Yeah. And it's so uncomfortable that he goes into his maternal grandmother's now deserted house for respite because he doesn't feel safe in his father and grandmother's home. Uh, so he's, you know, he steals to eat. He steals apples, which he sometimes gives to the grandfather, you know, who, who you also feel is being mistreated and starved. Um, and he steals milk and obviously he fills it with water so that it goes to its mark. Because he tries to fill it with water, but the tap doesn't work. So I, th yeah. I think he pees in it. Ah, right. I, it's no, a, is what right. I think <laughs> is going on there, which yeah, yeah. <laughs> is probably the, that's like, that, that's like the only funny moment in that second film, I think. He also pees on the dog's basket. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, because the, the grandmother's locked the toilet door so he can't get into it. And so he, he pees on the dog's blanket so it gets blamed on the dog, but but the grandmother doesn't mind the dog doing it. It's a real kind of bleak view of child abuse, of family, of family relationships, of a lack of parental care and responsibility, of how women bear the brunt. There's a real suggestion that the mother is driven to an asylum because actually 
being made pregnant by this guy and this not being followed up with marriage has led to such harassment in the community that it drives her mad. Yeah, because the father, I'm just trying to work out the timing, because the father has another son by his wife, and presumably Jamie is about the same age, so I guess the guy was already married. But... Uh, that's not made clear, because, yeah, the grandmother has two sons. One is a milk toast who gets married later. The milk toast who's, who's, the, who's Jamie's father, and who lives next door with the wife and the son who's around the same age as Jamie, who you only see very briefly in, briefly in the second film. And then, the, then there's the other, the other son who lives with the grandmother, who's the one who beats him up and abuses him. And that's not the father, that's the uncle. It's confusing because the milk toast is always with the mother in the mother's house. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and the brother is then clearly sleeping with his brother's wife. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. These relationships, that's why these relationships are so complicated. Because yes. partly because, I mean, Jamie doesn't understand these relationships. I mean, the, the caption at the beginning says, you know, I knew where my doll was, but it turned out I didn't really understand anything. And, you know, so he, I think he doesn't really know how these people relate to him. The other thing I found interesting is that there's this, because going, going back to the Hippodrome Festival that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, because that's, you know, Bowness is also just outside Edinburgh. It's a lot, it's much nicer than this place we see in this film. Um, but the, the scenes where the brother, cousin, sorry, steals jam jars from the cinema and then Jamie goes back with the jam jars, that's, that's a traditional thing that you could get into the cinema with two jam jars to ah. pay for your ticket. And at the Hipfest every year, there's a there's a Geely jar, the Geely jar being a jam jar. There's a Geely jar screening where kids can get in for half price or free or whatever if they turn up with a jam jar. So oh, it's kind it. of that, a tradition that still exists, which is yeah. nice. In the second film, My Own Folk, it begins with this poster of Lassie, or Lassie Come Home, yeah, with uh, Donald Crisp and Roddy McDowell. And obviously that is kind of like the ideal utopian kind of, contrast to what this child is living through and that is one of the things that you see throughout the trilogy so in the third uh, film Marilyn Monroe and the figure of Marilyn Monroe hovers over yeah, the yeah yeah he's moved on from border collies to Marilyn Monroe which is understandable <laughs> at that age <laughs> I thought my childhood you know was a kind of masterpiece really it's a really poetic and beautiful I thought my own folk is a great film yeah, though not quite on the level of my childhood. And then I had real problems with My Way Home. It almost felt like it should have been two short films, right? Because you've got the initial section, which is about roughly half of it, about 40 minutes, I think, where it's um, Jamie is in the children's home. What's interesting is because you, you think when, you, when that sequence starts that this is going to be another cycle of terrible abuse and, and misery, but actually the guy that runs the children's home is quite nice and is trying to do the best for the kids in the home. There's a really nice bit at the start where, where it's, it's Christmas and he comes into the dormitory and, and again, you see the, you know, the headmaster comes into the boys' dormitory at night. You're like, oh God, what, what, where's this going? But, but he just give, he's giving them all a present and um, he gives them a harmonica each. There's this heartbreaking bit where there's a, a letter to Santa that one of the younger boys has written and it's just like, here's all the stuff I'd like for Christmas. And of course he's getting none of that, but he at least he gets something. If I can interject, mm. there is also a suggestion there of child abuse. The, it, yeah, it's not, the, it's not the clear. The headmaster he's... is too friendly. He holds his hand. Yeah, right? yeah. And 
you know, when he, he tells him, you can stay here instead of going to your father if you want to be an artist. The child nonetheless chooses to go to where he is not loved rather than remain in... That's, that, is, that, is, that is true, although he then goes back. So, yeah, who knows? But, but yeah, it's ambiguous. But a little bit like the, the sequence with the German prisoner of war in the first film, where it, it, at certain points it looks like it might be heading in a direction of that being a, re a really inappropriate relationship, but actually it doesn't. It doesn't go that way. It's just Jamie's looking for a father figure, and probably you know, the prisoner of war is of an age where he's probably got kids at home, and, and uh, it, it's it's all very affectionate. Um, but yeah, so you get those sequences. Then, he then goes back home, and kind of the going back home. There's some interesting stuff where I guess by this point the grandmother's got dementia, I think, and. and it kind of echoes those scenes in, in in the second film, but it does sort of those that bit is kind of it's like well do we see do we need to see these these dreadful people being dreadful again you know um, it, it kind of goes over the same ground. But there are interesting things though. There's a thing that you know he wants to be an artist, but the father brings him home, and kind of there's a suggestion that really he wants to bring him home because he wants him to work and bring money to the family after not caring for him his whole life. Either that or he's going to end up caring for the grandmother. Yeah. Um, which again saves some money. Yeah. yeah, well, he chooses to live with the grandmother rather yeah, than yeah. with his father, where he's kind of clearly left out and so on. But the suggestion is really a transactional one. Yeah, that, yeah, I think that's you right. Know, he's not looking after the interests of the child or the child's wishes uh, at all. I thought all of that, the pictures of the you know, with the men working or going to work or, you know, the dancing lessons, yeah, with, you know, the way the boys, just their physical stance alone conveys so much. I thought that was all quite beautiful. I thought where it became problematic was when he went to the army in Egypt. It is what happened. It, it is you know, what, what happened in Bill Douglas' life next was he, go, he goes to the army, meets this guy. What struck me about that whole sequence, I mean, firstly, everything up to that point has been in this very enclosed environment and suddenly you're, you're somewhere completely different. But the, the other thing is the acting style. So the guy playing the friend is a professional actor and it's kind of a real clash of styles, I think, between him and, 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 and uh, Stephen Archibald, who plays Jamie. He speaks in those BBC yeah, tones. And actually there's a thing about the language anyway. Right. The, at the beginning, when they meet each other, they can't understand each other. I, yeah. I did like that. I mean, that that was actually genuinely funny, and it was it was nice to have a, some jokes after. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> but still, there's something oppressive and condescending about the character, the way he speaks, and so on. That to me just jived in with some of the worst aspects of uh, uh, British culture, really, mm, you know, mm. which, which I want to talk about because I've been reading this fantastic book by Jane Shattuck uh, called Television, Tabloid and Fears, Fascinating on Popular Culture, in which she goes on to talk about how the model for television in uh, West Germany, which was organized by Graham Greene's brother, by the way, yeah, who is kind of credited with doing a good job and so on, but that actually that the model was a British one in which there was a very clear idea of what high culture was. You know, there was the uh, Reithian remit of television, which was to educate the lower classes, right? But to educate the lower classes in the culture, right, of the upper middle, 
and how there was this Mandarin way of organizing the broadcast service. What was trusted to transmit those values was people who went to the right schools, to Eton, to Oxford, to, Com to Cambridge. Those are the people that then got hired right, to transmit kind of the culture to the rest. And that really, in some ways, is a critique of BBC culture, which we all kind of experience. Right. But it's really kind of starkly written by an American writing about Germany in a way, you know, that feels kind of more acute and perceptive, really, than what we read, which is always more mixed. Yeah, because of the valuing of the BBC and what the BBC represents. And actually the kind of this whole other element is kind of acknowledged, but kind of, you know, pushed, pushed away a bit. And actually what I saw in that book is what you see in this film. You know, the middle-class English guy is, you know, the one who's reading Maxine Gorky and, you know, gets him to read Kafka and invites him to go back to his home where he can have the career of the artist that he wants. And, of course, this is then kind of contrasted or in tension with the career of Bill Douglas himself. Because, actually, you know, one of the things that, it, the, you know, the whole trilogy makes you wonder is how does a man who makes a masterpiece as great as my childhood, right? It, it won, you know, the Silver Lion in Venice, right? It was recognized everywhere. How does this talent only get to make two feature films in his whole life? Yeah, two medium-length films and two feature films. That's, that's what his filmography amounts to. Partly that comes down to the way the British film industry was operating, particularly in that period um, between the early 70s and the, and the, uh, the, the mid-80s when, when Film 4 came in. Because if you look at the careers of, if you look at Ken Loach or look at Mike Lee or any of those guys, or, because they were all guys, <laughs> there, was, there were some women too, but you know, Mike Lee made no films, no, no feature films between about 19, the early 70s and, and the mid-80s, for instance, which is the period when Bill Douglas wasn't getting films funded. So it was basically you couldn't get anyone to fund a film. So it's the, the trilogy. Maybe, maybe, with, maybe with those people, it's for the same reasons. Either there's a class basis. Yeah, well, because the film that Bill Douglas, The yeah, Comrades, which I haven't seen, is about the Toll Problem Artists. So it's a very yeah, political film about, you know, early, essentially proto communists. One of the production problems that Comrades had, so thinking about this class issue and everything, because uh, I was just about to say, you know, Comrades was a long way from being a Merchant Ivory film, which were the films that were getting made. And actually, the original producer of Comrades was 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 Merchant, who then pulled out after clashes with, with Bill Douglas. During that period, he he I think he was teaching film, and he was kind of in that milieu. But it's not that other directors of you know, other British art house directors weren't getting films made either. I mean, look at Horace Ove, who we, we talked about a while ago, or, or or as I say, or Mike Lee or, or Ken Loach. None of them were getting films made. The difference is a lot of them were getting stuff made for, for TV and particularly for the BBC, which Bill Douglas clearly wasn't. And all of those people are marginalised either by class or race. Yeah. Or nationality. Yeah, um, true. And the other thing is that, you know, at, at the point where, so, so Comrades came out in um, 87, I think. So nearly 10 years after My Way Home. Bill Douglas died in 1991. He written a few other screenplays by that point that weren't produced he almost certainly would have had the opportunity to do more if he'd lived because the 90s was a period when a lot more British films were being made the, the question you'd ask about what about Bill Douglas 
is why he wasn't getting those opportunities to direct TV, you know, pl single plays for TV in a way that Mike Lee did or Ken Loach did. Possibly he didn't want to, but I doubt that's the case. It's interesting that we're comparing him to Ken Loach and Mike Lee, and, you know, for obvious reasons, it's blasphemy. But I think we should also look, well, who were the people who were working steadily throughout the 70s? <laughs> Peter Rogers, you know, the, the carry-on films. and Or all those plays for the day, you know, who was making them, you know, for BBC in the 70s? What was their class? And you, you're right, because there's a stable of people, uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg, Michael Apted, all those people were, were all, uh, and James Furman were, were all kind of Oxbridge educated, being through BBC training courses. You know, you, you learn to be a, a TV director by going through BBC training courses to learn to be a BBC director. You didn't become, Mike Lee made a film for the BFI and then made films for the BBC. But in general, you, I think you went through, you had to go through this BBC training process. So yeah, that, you, you, you're right. And I'm sure there is a class issue there. I mean, I was looking at the wiki page and it's so fascinating. And again, I think a real indictment of the BBC and of British culture in general, because you go through the list of films and there are about 20 more films made on Bill Douglas than Bill <laughs> Douglas got a chance to make. There's endless arena programs and documentaries and all of this on this figure who was somehow not allowed to make films yeah, in spite yeah. of having won Silver Lions and so on. I mean, that to me says something. On that note, it's a real discovery, this work, you know, that I really encourage everyone to see. It's really marvelous. And I do think that uh, my childhood is one of the very greatest works of fiction. Thank you very much for listening. We are thinking aloud about film, and it's been a real pleasure to talk about the political Bye-bye. Bye.